Welcome to Pip Talk, a podcast featuring interviews with rebels, visionaries, mystics, outliers, change makers, and people I find interesting. I am your host, Pip. Today, we are speaking with Sivan Ruffles. Sivan is a professor of gynocentric Torah and creative writing. She has been a formal and informal Jewish educator for over 10 years and is now a student rabbi at HUCJIR, the Reform Seminary for Rabbis and Cantors. Hi, Sivan. Hi, Pip. What is gynocentric Torah? Yes, excellent. Thank you. Um, so gynocentric is as opposed to androcentric. So androcentric means centered on the experiences of males. And so gynocentric means centered on the experiences of females. Gynocentric Torah specifically is study of Torah um, or the stories of Torah or the literature and thought that emanates from Torah through a lens that is focused on the stories and experiences of women or female characters. And why? Why gynocentric Torah? So there's a million reasons, but for me, I would say it's really important to be aware of the fact that for thousands of years, we have experienced the Bible through an androcentric lens. Um, it was primarily studied by men. Um, it was primarily taught by men. The commentary upon it was primarily written by men. And it's really only been in recent history that we have, for the first time, had women's voices in the discussion, had other gendered voices in the discussion. And so really to study the Torah through a gynocentric lens is to take something that is ancient, not just the text, but the practice of how we encounter and read it. And for the first time in history, really say, what happens when we look at this through the lens of the other half of the population, right? Women are roughly 50% of the population. And yet for thousands of years, we've been excluded from the conversation. And our experiences and our viewpoint has been excluded. So gynocentric Torah really works toward leveling the playing field um, by just saying, okay, great. We've looked at it through an androcentric lens for thousands of years. What happens when we, when we flip the script and look at it from the perspective of the other half of the population? What does happen when we do that? Well, if you're female, (laughs) I think that it changes everything. I, I, you know, I've been teaching gynocentric Torah for over 10 years, and I have seen the life-changing power that happens when, for the first time in their lives, women see themselves in the text. I would say that for this reason, I also think that there's a new movement that's happening of um, queer Torah and gender queer Torah and Torah for all levels of ability and Torah through a lens of uh, people of color. And all of, those, all of those ways of studying Torah are equally important because the people for whom that is their lived experience, for them to see themselves in Torah is life-changing. And just by the way, by Torah, what I mean is the Hebrew Bible. Um, what many Christians refer to as the Old Testament, but um, Jews call it Torah or Tanakh or, um, or the Hebrew Bible. So when you see yourself in text, in your religious text, in your spiritual text, in the text of your people, all of a sudden you're part of the conversation, you're part of the experience. Um, and it's just, it's critical. And I would say as much as it's critical for women to see themselves in Torah, it's also critical for men to experience Torah in a way that doesn't center around their experience. Um, There's a project that's really interesting that's happening right now called Torah Ta, where, um, where some incredible humans have regendered the the Hebrew Bible um, like literally like Abraham becomes female and Sarah becomes male like they've switched the genders of all of the characters in the in the Bible and that's not what I do but it's interesting to me to see what people's experiences are when they encounter the text in that way um, 
And for men in particular, it's like it's the first time in their life that they've ever actually been able to put themselves in the shoes of women as women encounter Torah. All of a sudden, they understand how off-putting it can be when everything is centered on a gender that's not your own. And so I think that gynocentric Torah can have that same effect, but less about it being off-putting for men. Um, The idea that it can make them that it can invite them to empathize with the other. Um, and that it can really, I think, make feminists of men. Not that men aren't already feminists, but there are, are plenty who aren't. Um, it can really help people of, of all genders to think differently about things I think that they take for granted. Um, including the idea of the gender of God or of God having a gender altogether. Um, And really the foundational moments in Western history that still inform so much of our lived life and experience today. Um, You know, examples like the idea, and this actually comes from the Christian tradition more than the Jewish tradition, but the idea that Eve eating the apple is original sin and that Eve is responsible for all of the woes of women forever because she ate the apple. Um, You know, when you have, when you encounter the Torah through a gynocentric lens, when you actually start to ask who was Eve as a woman and what were her experiences and what was her perspective. And when you really look at that story, not through the lens of blaming Eve, but of trying to empathize with Eve and to understand her perspective, it makes you question everything that you've taken for granted about Eve and then all of the consequences of her actions. Um, So I think that it can just really, I think that studying Torah through a gynocentric lens can, can change perceptions, can make people feel seen, can really connect people to these sacred texts in a way that they may not be able to connect to otherwise. That's beautiful. Speaking of Eve, uh, one of the names that you gave me as a possible character that we could discuss is Lilith. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about Lilith? Yeah, absolutely. So Lilith is one of my favorite characters of biblical literature. I say biblical literature as opposed to the Torah um, because Lilith's story does not appear in the Torah itself. It appears in later literature that is sort of commenting on and considering the Torah. The word Lilith or Lilith in Hebrew actually does appear once in the Torah in Isaiah in an end of days scenario where he says that all of these creatures are going to be doing all of these things after, you know, during the apocalypse, essentially. And one of the creatures who's going to be present there is going to be Lilith. Um, but that is the only time that that word appears in the, in the Bible. But um, I'm thinking more of the story of Lilith as Adam's first wife. So Lilith's story originates from the idea that there is a difference in the creation of man and woman, the creation of man and woman in the Bible, the story of the creation of man and woman or of humankind is actually told twice in the Bible, once in Genesis one and once in Genesis two. So in Genesis one, it says God created humankind in God's image, uh, male and female, God created them. And then in Genesis two, we have the much more famous story of Adam being put to sleep and God creating a woman out of his, his rib is usually how we think of it, but it's actually probably side is a better translation. Um, so the rabbis, and when I say the rabbis, I mean the rabbis with a capital R. I mean the rabbis of the period of the destruction of the Second Temple, um, the rabbis who wrote our, our foundational Jewish texts um, that would eventually become the Talmud, um, and who really invented Judaism as we think of Judaism today. So the rabbis are considered like our great sages, and the rabbis. Um, looked at Genesis one and two, and they said, when we look at these two, it actually appears to be two different creation stories. It almost appears as if 
woman was created twice. The way that womankind is made in the story in Genesis one is not the same as the way woman is made in Genesis two. And for the rabbis, every single word and phrase and omission in Torah has meaning. It's a sacred text from God. So everything there is intentional. And so they looked at this and they said, I don't understand um, why there appear to be two different tellings of the story. What could it mean? And one of the hypotheses that they came up with is that in fact, in Genesis one, a first woman was created who wasn't Eve. A woman was created before Eve. And that woman eventually later in rabbinic literature and thought um, in a, a probably medieval um, uh, piece of writing called the alphabet of Ben Sirach, that woman comes to be named Lilith. And the story of Lilith as told by Ben Sirach is that God created man and woman, and he created them in the same way, at the same time, out of the same materials. And because they were made at the same time, in the same way, out of the same materials, Lilith believed herself equal to Adam. And so when Adam, who believed himself superior uh, to Lilith, um, demanded that when they engage in intercourse, he be on top and she be on the bottom. Uh, this is really right there in the alphabet of Ben Sirach. Um, she refused. She refused to take the subservient position during the sexual act because she believed herself to be equal to Adam. She essentially said, if I was created the same way as you, we are equals. I should not have to be beneath you. And um, Adam did not agree. And so Lilith, in some of my favorite literature of all of Jewish literature, uh, Lilith says the ineffable name of God, right? And ineffable means it cannot be said, but Lilith has the power to say God's name and it acts as a sort of magical utterance. She flies out of the Garden of Eden. She flies over the Red Sea and she escapes and she leaves. Then Adam goes and complains to God and says, the woman that you made for me left me, boo-hoo. Um, and so God sends three angels after Lilith to bring her back. And the angels try to get her to come back and she refuses because she hated, you know, life with Adam so much. And she hated being treated as subservient so much. And so she refuses to go back with the angels. And so then the angels threaten her and they tell her if she does not come back, she will lose a hundred of her demon babies every day. So every day she will bear a hundred demon children and those children will be killed if she does not come back. She prefers that punishment to life with Adam. And so that is it. She stays outside of the garden. She is doomed to have, have and lose a hundred demon children every day. Um, and God essentially says, I didn't do this right the first time. I'd better do it right the second time and therefore goes and puts Adam to sleep, opens up Adam's rib and creates Eve. Uh, and in this, in this instance, he creates woman from a body part of man in order to make sure that she knows that she is lesser than man so that she doesn't have the same idea that Lilith had that man and woman are equal. Um, so the, the rabbis, did they see it also as God made a mistake the first time? Like, is God fallible? Um, in this iteration, in this story, in the alphabet of Ben Sirach, yes. So by the time that we're at that al the alphabet of Ben Sirach, we are thousands of years, uh, 1500 years, 1200 years, about 1200 years later um, than the original rabbis who were looking at this discrepancy between Genesis one and Genesis two. And over that 1500 years, what you have as a, as a tradition mostly oral, occasionally in writing of a sort of like a folkloric metamorphosis of this story. And then what gets written down by Ben Sirach is sort of the most famous version that we have. Um, but in Ben Sirach's story, yeah, God is, God is fallible. Um, not just fallible, but God does not have ultimate power. God sends God's angels to bring Lilith back and they cannot do it right? And angels throughout biblical literature are messengers of God. And sometimes they are thought of as the incarnation of God or the hand of God. Uh, they can't bring her back. So God does not have ultimate power. And yes, God says, 
I need to do this differently because it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to the first time. So yeah, absolutely. What we have in the story of Lilith is an idea that, that God, uh, that God makes mistakes and that God doesn't have the ultimate power. What can the audience take from a gynocentric reading of Lilith's story? So historically, and from the time that it was written, Lilith's story was written in order to be a warning to women. Originally, it was meant to scare women into thinking that if they believed themselves equal to men, if they thought that they could stand up to their husbands, um, that they too would be um, excluded from community, uh, exiled, that's the word I'm looking for, that they too would be exiled from their communities, that they too might lose their children. Um, So she was really written to be a warning story. And for a very long time, Lilith was successfully demonized. Um, Even as as late as the 19th century, Jewish women, not all of them, but there's evidence of some Jewish women would um, have amulets in their birthing chambers or in their nurseries to protect their children against Lilith. Because over the centuries, Lilith gets an even worse reputation. She comes to be known as a killer of babies. She's responsible for the deaths of women and and children in childbirth. Um, She uh, sneaks into men's rooms and uh, she sneaks even into the marital bed. And if a drop of semen is spilled in the marital bed outside of the act of procreation, she steals the semen to make her demon babies. So she really becomes like demonized in sort of the popular culture of the Jewish people for a long time. And for all of these, all of these centuries, she is really thought of as this terrible creature who you would never want to have in your house and need, you need to be protected against her. Uh, and so the idea that she was invented to scare women like really worked. Only in the last 50 years, um, since the second wave feminist movement in America and the real emergence of a, of a Jewish feminist movement in America, do we have a flipping of the script of Lilith. So for the first time, we have a kind of a, of a gynocentric take on Lilith, where we start to ask about her experience and to look at the story, not from the male gaze of, look how dangerous this woman is, you should be terrified of her, but through the, the gaze of the woman herself and saying, okay, here's this woman who clearly was made at the same time, in the same manner of the same materials as Adam. There's absolutely no reason that she should have been subservient. It's not even like in her story, God said, I have made man and woman, I've made you equal, but man should rule over woman. That doesn't exist in the story of Lilith. So there's no reason that she should believe anything other than that she's equal to Adam. Um, And here we have a woman who, when she realizes that she's being asked to be treated as lesser than, her response is no. I would rather be on my own. I would rather suffer than have to be in a relationship where I am treated like I am a second-class citizen. And so she actually becomes in the last 50 years, a feminist role model. Um, There is uh, America's only Jewish feminist magazine is called Lilith Magazine. In the nineties, there was a touring touring musical, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like a festival, a touring musical festival called the Lilith Fair, which was all female uh, uh, musical musicians and artists that performed. Um, there are all these ways that Lilith has come to be a symbol of women's empowerment because while the men looked at her standing up to a man and said, this is so horrible, she's a demon, she needs to be exiled, you should be afraid that if you act uppity like her, you're going to be treated like her. That was the male experience because they were threatened by women's power. But the female experience is to say, no, women are powerful, women are equals. And therefore Lilith isn't a demon, she is a role model. She is really history's first feminist because feminism at the end of the day is advocating for gender equality. And what, what, what did Lilith do? What was she, what was she exiled for? You know, at at the end of the day, it was very, very simply advocating for gender equality. So 
looking at Lilith through a gynocentric lens allows us to take a historically demonized character and say, actually, when we look at her experience and her actions and think of it from her perspective, she's not a demon. You demonized her. And actually to us, to women, she's a role model. Mm. Yeah, I like that reframing a lot. When we decided that we were going to have this interview, you gave me a few choices of angles that we could look at um, for this interview. And uh, the one I ended up picking was feminist reclamations of biblical characters. And in that you had Vashti, Jezebel, and Lilith. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about Vashti and Jezebel? Yeah. So first of all, I, I chose those three characters altogether because for many people in normative spaces, when you say Vashti, when you say Lilith, or when you say Jezebel, they think of them as, they think negatively of those characters. Um, Historically, those characters have all gotten a bad rap. And yet, when you apply a gynocentric lens to those characters in particular, like we just did with Lilith, um, it completely changes the understanding, the experience, and can turn on its head a lot of conceptions about women um, that women have sort of suffered under the tropes of, of, these, of these characters. So um, you wanted me to, to talk about Vashti or Jezebel? Let's do Vashti first. Okay, great. So Vashti is, Vashti is probably my favorite character in the Tanakh itself, in the Hebrew Bible itself. So I love Lilith, but Lilith, as we discussed, comes from extra biblical literature. She comes from from secondary sources that are reading the Hebrew Bible. Whereas Vashti appears in the the book of Esther, in Megillat Esther, in the scroll of Esther, which is the story that we read on, on the holiday of Purim each year. And so therefore she's actually in the Hebrew Bible itself. And so she's probably my favorite character in the Hebrew Bible. So Vashti is the first wife uh, and queen of King Ahasuerus. Um, and the story of Purim opens with Ahasuerus and his advisors have been partying and drinking and eating to excess for a significant period of time. And so they're all pretty smashed at this point. And um, Ahasuerus calls for Vashti, his queen, and orders her to appear in front of his men, in front of his advisors and the men that he's entertaining, wearing her crown. Now, the the Torah itself, uh, the Tanakh itself, the, the Hebrew Bible itself, doesn't, that's all it says, that Vashti's ordered to appear wearing her crown. But the rabbis, when they read the story, said, why does it specify that she's wearing her crown? They decided that that's because she was was told to appear wearing only her crown, to Mm -hmm. come appear naked before these men wearing just her crown. Whether she was clothed or not, the idea is that she was being asked to sort of be, to, to debase herself, right? Like, She's a royal. She's in her own rooms with her women having a women's banquet when this happens. And she's called in to show off in some, in one way or another to the king's men. And Vashti refuses. This is, now we're back to the Hebrew Bible itself. Vashti refuses. And the punishment for Vashti's refusal is that she loses her crown. Uh, She's no longer queen. And We don't know what happens to her. Some scholars believe that she's exiled. Some scholars believe that she's killed, but it doesn't actually say in the Bible what happens to her. But I read Vashti as very much like a Lilith character. I actually think in the Bible itself, she's the character who's the most like Lilith because she is a royal like her husband. They are of equal social status. um, And she is asked to be subservient to her husband in a way that's degrading for her. We don't know exactly why it's degrading. We don't know if it's because she's asked to appear naked. We don't know if it's because the men are drunk. We don't know if it's because she's not asked to appear in front of her husband, but in front of his men who are of lower social status than she is. We don't know exactly what qualms she has with this request, but we know that she refuses. And the reason that she refuses has to be that there's something about it that that doesn't sit right with her, probably that's beneath her, her person and her station. So 
by refusing to, to be subservient to her husband and by bearing a very significant punishment for that choice, she is very much like Lilith and she becomes really the Hebrew Bible's most Lilith-like character. Um, you could absolutely argue that Vashti is also a feminist. It's not as overt and as clear as it is with Lilith, but it seems like that is what's happening, that she's standing up for her rights, uh, for her rights of, of e- to be treated equally as a, as a woman. Um, and so for me, I just absolutely adore her as a character, but historically she was demonized like Lilith was, um, again, less overtly. Demon, uh, Lilith is actually called a demon. Lilith is thought of as a demon, but Vashti is um, hated by the rabbis. There's lots of writing about her that just says how terrible she was. Um, she's definitely disliked because unlike Esther, who will come after her, she's not Jewish, she's Persian. Uh, and there's a lot of, of hatred of foreigners in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but yeah, historically, Vashti is really demonized. Like I, um, I was preparing to teach a, what we call a Tat Shabbat, which is a, um, a Saturday morning, a Shabbat morning um, programming for children in a synagogue. I was preparing to teach a Tat Shabbat a year or two ago. And I, uh, the, it was on Zoom because it was during COVID. And I wanted to find some materials to send in advance to the parents so that the kids had some activities that they could do while we were, um, while we were studying together or learning together. And so I found, I wanted to find some coloring pages of characters from the story of Esther. It was a, the Tat Shabbat was a Purim Tat Shabbat. So I went and found some really lovely coloring pages of the story. And then I got to the picture of Vashti and here she is a beautiful queen with a crown on her head. And then you get to the lower half of her body and it's a snake. The woman in this depiction, in this child's, this children's coloring book page depiction in, you know, 2020, Vashti is depicted as being half woman, half snake. So that is sort of like a a nice little metaphor for how she's been treated and to this day is thought of, right? So again, you have a woman who stood up for herself um, and who whose punishment was both the immediate punishment in the story and then the long punishment of history of being demonized by men and women alike in the Jewish tradition for having stood up for herself. So that's sort of how we inherit Vashti. But when you look at her through a gynocentric lens, you start to understand her experience. Her husband was drunk. He had been, I think, I don't, I don't have the story in front of me, but it's something like he had, he was on like the third day of drinking in and partying in his own palace after some kind of like month long tour of debauchery that they had gone on. So he's been like, he's like over a month of drinking all the time. Um, you know, when he, when he demands that she show up, you know, for him. Um, and it's really humiliating and demeaning, whatever, whatever it is exactly that bothers her about it. The woman is willing to lose her crown and possibly her life because her belief in herself and her position uh, and what she deserves in that moment is higher than what is being asked of her. So we can really empathize with her that here is a woman who believed in her self-worth and who wasn't willing to lower herself beneath her perception of herself um, and for that is punished. And so this is just another instance of how a feminist reclamation by shifting the lens to gynocentric and by not reading Vashti as the rabbis read her and not just inheriting and accepting the male gaze on this character, we can begin to empathize with her and say, okay, she's not a demon and she's not a snake. She is a woman who didn't want to debase herself. And she bore, and she, you know, she suffered a really significant punishment um, as, as a result of that. And so we should empathize with her rather than further demonizing her. I like that new read on it. Um, what about Jezebel? 
So Jezebel's the most complicated of the three that I gave you because Jezebel is not a blameless character in her story. Um, when I look at Lilith's original story of the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, I don't take any issue with Lilith's actions. When I look at Vashti's story in the Hebrew Bible, I don't take any any issue with Vashti's actions. In Jezebel's story, she's a much more complex character and she does some things that are problematic and yet she still gets a bad rap in the long run of history for the wrong reasons. And, and that's what I really wanna, wanna bring to light when I talk about Jezebel today is not that Jezebel is a hero, but that Jezebel has been uh, slut shamed essentially when that is not what she deserves whatsoever. She should be held accountable for her actions, um, but we should all be aware of what those actions are and not be able to write and not be willing to write her off in a misogynistic way. So let me tell you what I mean by that. So Jezebel is a foreign queen who marries uh, an Israelite king, um, Ahab, King Ahab. And when she comes to her new home to marry the king, she brings with her her foreign gods and goddesses. Specifically, she brings Baal and Asherah and the worship of Baal and Asherah and prophets of Baal and Asherah into the kingdom of Ahab, who's an Israelite king who worships the one God, the, the God of, of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. The, you know, there are many names for this God, but the monotheistic God. And essentially she comes in as many foreign Queens did like in the temple of King Solomon, there were, um, there were statues of all kinds of deities because he had so many foreign wives and they also brought their, their gods and goddesses. Um, but in, in this instance, we probably have the two of them living together and their people are able to worship whoever their people, their, whoever their people want to worship. So we have a, a kind of, of a, of a religious tolerance situation happening. Um, however, this is the time of Elijah, known as Eliyahu in Hebrew, uh, Elijah the prophet. And Elijah is, um, is the leader of the prophets of Yah, of the prophets of, of the one God. And Jezebel is the leader of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. And these two groups come to a head and there's this giant battle where Elijah wants to prove that he and his God and his prophets are the most powerful. And Jezebel wants to prove that her gods and their prophets are the most powerful. And over the course of the battle that goes back and forth with them, which is part like showing off the magic, magical powers of these deities, but also part slaying of prophets, um, the 450 prophets of Baal are killed. And when people look at that, when Jewish people, when Jewish people look at that aspect of the story, they essentially say Jezebel was so terrible. She brought these idol worshiping, she brought these idol worshiping practices and idol worshiping prophets into our land. And she is terrible for that reason. And I look at the story and say, okay, what we actually have here is like a religious war. We have two different belief systems and the leaders of each of these belief systems are fighting against one another. And, you know, these, a lot, Jezebel kills 400 or 450 prophets of Elijah and Elijah kills 450 prophets of Baal. We are the victors. We, the Jewish people are the victors of the story. And you know, the adage about, you know, history is written by the victors. So when the story is written through the lens of the Jewish people, we say, look how terrible Jezebel was. She slaughtered 450 of our prophets. Uh, and I look at this story and say, okay, but we slaughtered 450 of hers also. And actually this was just a religious war. She's not so terrible just because she lost. But one thing, one thing that changes about the reading of the story when you look at it through a gynocentric lens of this aspect of the story is that we knew that there were 450 prophets of Baal and that there were 400 prophets of Asherah. So Baal is the male deity who's in direct competition with Yah, the, the monotheistic one God. And Asherah is the goddess. 
Uh, and at different times in Hebrew history, in Israelite history, she's actually been she's actually been worshipped alongside our God. She's been sometimes considered the wife of our God. So in this story, as we have it in the Bible, the 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered by Elijah and his prophets, but the 400 the 400 prophets of Asherah are not. And so there's something underneath this story that is saying the male God had to go, but the female God didn't. The, the prophets of the male God had to be slaughtered, but the prophets of the female, uh, of the female goddess didn't. And there's just, there's something in there that I think forces us to question more what was really going on with the religious war that was happening at the time. And also with what people are really taking issue with about what Jezebel was doing. So I'm just going to put, I'm just going to leave that there. That's not the whole story, but that's an important aspect of it is that one of the things that Jezebel is hated for is slaughtering the prophets of, of, uh, of Yah, even though the prophets of Baal were also slaughtered. Um, so as Jezebel's story goes on, there's this incident of her ensuring that a man named Naboth is killed so that her husband Ahab can inherit his field. That's very problematic. And I'm going to circle back to that in a minute, because that's actually the one thing I think Jezebel does do wrong in the story. But that's, I want to first focus on what history thinks Jezebel has done wrong. So at the end of Jezebel's story, Jehu, who is going to be the new king after Ahab, after Ahab's family are all killed off, Jehu is going to be the new king and Jehu is uh, another um, Israelite king. Jehu comes to Jezebel to kill her, to end her line, to end her reign at the end of her story. And when he comes to kill her, she knows he's coming. She, uh, he's already killed her husband. He's killed her sons. And she knows he's coming for her. And so she paints her eyes with coal, which is essentially the um, historical and even used to this day in the Middle East, the Middle Eastern sort of precursor to or equivalent of um, eyeliner. So she paints her eyes with coal and then she goes to the window of her tower to greet Ahab. And Ahab tells the eunuchs who are in the room with her to throw her down and the eunuchs throw her out the window and she is um, uh, trampled by horses and she is eaten by dogs. Uh, it's a really, it's a very dark end to her story, a very um, graphic dark end to her story. And what history has seized on is that before Jezebel goes to the window, she paints her eyes with coal. And for that, that detail that's in her story, what Jezebel is remembered for in the long course of history is being a harlot. Um, the, the name Jezebel, it's still really common today in the American South. Historically, it was more common everywhere, but the, the, the term Jezebel is interchangeable with slut, harlot, prostitute, loose woman, easy girl, um, someone who dresses in a way that's considered too sexual, someone who's too loose with her sexuality, the list goes on and on. But that is what the word Jezebel has come to be synonymous with, is a kind of a hussy, essentially. What I think of as a hussy is a Jezebel. I read her story and I say, this woman was, there was no infidelity. This woman did not have any romantic entanglement with anyone in her story. We don't even see her having a romantic relationship with her own husband, like overtly in the story itself. Of course, they have children together, so we know that it happened. But like, there is nothing sexualized about Jezebel in her story itself as it appears in the Hebrew Bible. And yet, if you ask the average person on the street, what who was Jezebel? What was Jezebel? What is a Jezebel today? They're going to give you some kind of a, of a synonym of a hussy, right? So despite the fact that she's not at all sexualized in her story, she's in the long run of history thought of as synonymous with a harlot. Okay. Why? That doesn't make any sense at all. And it's because she puts on this eyeliner 
in her story, okay, that still doesn't make any sense. Plenty of people wear eyeliners and aren't hussies. So it turns out that in um, 16th century, I'm pretty sure, yes, 16th century England, painting one's face was evidence that a woman had loose morals. So it was actually in the 16th century in England that the term Jezebel came to mean a wicked woman or a loose woman or a woman with loose morals. So in the long run of history, we believe Jezebel to be a harlot or a hussy, having nothing to do with her actual character in the story and everything to do with the fact that she put on coal before she, um, before she came to the window. Now, why in the, in the context of her story itself did she probably do that? She was a queen. She was royal. She was raised to be a queen in the court that she came from before she came to the court that she was in. She knew that she was meeting her end and she probably wanted to look her best and be her most regal self in that moment. Like in many ways, it makes me think of Anne Boleyn and the end of Anne Boleyn's life and how Anne Boleyn brought herself up to her full height and her full regality before she put her head on the scaffold, right? This idea that like, just because you're going to bring me down doesn't mean that I'm not going to go down with the pride of my station, my rank. So that is probably why she did that. There's also a line of thinking um, in, um, in historical, uh, like ancient, uh, ancient, histor- in ancient historical readings of the story. There's this trope of the quote, woman in the window. And there are these ancient uh, reliefs, like actual archeological um, uh, stone tablets, essentially with artistic depictions on them that we have, um, like, you know, that are in museums today um, that represent the woman in the window. And it's believed to be, to have been the goddess Astarte or Asherah, the same goddess that that Jezebel brings into her, into her rule. Um, and you see these, these motifs, these, these tablets um, of the face of a woman in a window. So there is at least some scholars believe that Jezebel's story was actually just a quote unquote modern, like modern for its time, a modern retelling of the woman in the window and that she was actually seen as sort of like an incarnation of, uh, of the goddess. Um, so that's just an interesting, uh, interesting side note about what might've been going on with her appearing in the window with her eyes painted with coal in that moment, like in a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I want to when I, when I think of reclaiming Jezebel from a feminist perspective, when I look at her story, I see a very powerful woman who was demonized in history as a harlot when her story doesn't have that in it whatsoever. And what she actually did wrong in her story is glossed over and is not what she's held accountable for. And so that's the last thing that I wanna talk about about Jezebel is what did she actually do wrong in her story? Which is that her husband Ahab wanted to own the field, uh, the vineyard, sorry, the vineyard of a man named Nabot, whose vineyard was adjacent to the the royal lands. And so Ahab wanted to include it in the royal lands. He tried to buy it from Nabot. Nabot said, no, this is ancestral land for me. You can't buy it. And so Jezebel, gets two false witnesses to show up and say that Nabot had cursed God and had cursed the king, which is treasonous behavior. And Nabot is stoned to death for treason. And because he's stoned, because he's killed for treason, his, his lands don't go to his issue, to his children, they go to his king. And so Jezebel finds this really underhanded, terrible way to get the lands to Ahab. And she kills, um, she kills Nabot in so doing. And so in many ways, she has blood on her hands from that act. And that is a very problematic thing. When I look at the story of Jezebel, I say, okay, she killed 450 Hebrew prophets. Fine. They were trying to kill her people too. That was war. She was just a, a, a powerful war leader in a religious war. She didn't actually do anything wrong in that instance. When I look at the, at the painting, her eyes with coal and the end of her life, I say, okay, she didn't actually, she didn't do anything sexually scandalous, right? She doesn't deserve that reputation as a harlot. It's only this moment of what happens with the field and Nabot and the killing of Nabot that is very problematic behavior. And 
what I would ask for in a feminist retelling of the story of Jezebel, uh, when I when I apply a gynocentric lens to it, what I would ask for of Jezebel is that she be tried and convicted of the crimes she actually committed. That we don't just allow the long history of misogyny to write her off as a harlot and to let women for thousands of years be called Jezebels as if that's some sort of a sexually problematic way of being. Um, But that instead we say, Jezebel killed someone in order to take his fields. That was a terrible thing. We should hold her accountable for that, but we shouldn't say that she was a harlot and we shouldn't say that she was promiscuous. Uh, and we shouldn't say that she was a wicked woman for any reason other than this. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Cause I had always heard that too, that she was a harlot, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So that's an interesting retake on it. What led you on this path of, of teaching gynocentric Torah? Yeah, so um, when... I was a teenager. My mother uh, started to explore Judaism through a feminist lens. My mother was always a feminist, but she converted to Judaism. And um, I think that because she converted to Judaism, she she sort of accepted Judaism as it was at first and didn't question it because it was something that she was voluntarily taking on to herself. But then, you know, 15 years later, she started to say, oh, wait, how do I reconcile my feminist self with my Jewish self? And so she started to ask questions about the women. And I think that 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 happened for me. My mom's questioning Judaism through a feminist lens that happened for me at a really formative time in my life, right? Like when you're a teenager, you're you're starting to question things that you've never questioned before and really I think the seeds are planted for the adult that you're going to grow up to be. And that's what happened for me. The seeds were planted. Um, I don't know that I became a feminist right away. And I certainly didn't, um, didn't fall in love with gynocentric Torah at the age of 15, but seeds were planted that um, later when I went to graduate school to get my MFA in creative writing, um, I was told that I could choose anything I wanted to as the subject of my thesis. And I said, huh, I think I'd really like to learn more about the women of biblical literature. And so I spent my graduate, uh, my graduate work time um, studying what I would later come to call. I didn't even know it was, was called that at the time, what I would later come to call gynocentric Torah. I, I started studying the Torah, the Hebrew Bible through a feminist lens and really just for the first time diving into these traditions and these stories that I had had my whole life from the perspective of the women. And that really changed my life. Um, You know, I, I really doubled down on Judaism as a result of feeling excluded from Judaism because it's patriarchal but choosing to fight against that and to find my own way that I could, um, that I could reconcile my Judaism because I had to fight for it. I really doubled down on my Judaism and it became a much bigger part of my life. Um, I'm sure for many people, because of the patriarchal nature of Judaism, they actually walk away from it. But for me, I chose instead to fight against that. And I ended up becoming a professor of of women of biblical literature. And um, that eventually led me to the rabbinate. And I'm now becoming a rabbi, um, all as a result of this, all because of my experience when I started to read the Torah through a gynocentric lens. If I understand correctly, women were not always allowed to become rabbis. Yeah, absolutely not. We actually just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first ordination of an, uh, of an American reform, which is the denomination I belong to, of, of a reform Jewish rabbi in America, Sally Presant. Um, she's not the first rabbi ever, but she is the first rabbi ordained in America in, the, in America period and in, in the reform movement in America. Um, so that's 50 years. So we've only had 50 years of women in the American progressive rabbinate. 
there were a couple of women throughout history before then. Um, one woman, Osnat Barzani from the, the 15th or 16th, 15th century, I think, who wasn't officially what we think of as a rabbi today, but her, she taught Torah and her students called her uh, my rabbi. And so she's thought of as, as perhaps the first rabbi, the first woman rabbi in history. Um, there was another um, woman in, um, who was killed in the Holocaust, who was uh, actually given smicha ordination. So she was another contender for first woman rabbi. Um, but really like the practice of there being women in the rabbinate, like plural, has only been around for 50 years. So it's very new. First, it was the reform movement. Then the conservative movement, I think 10 or 15 years later, started ordaining women. Um, and now even streams of orthodoxy, which is the most stringent of the Jewish denominations, even streams of orthodoxy are ordaining women. Um, some of those women choose the title of rabbi. Some of those women choose a different title for themselves because they still don't believe that women can be rabbis, but they believe that women should be ordained like rabbis and then just choose a, a title that, um, that they can reconcile their orthodox belief with the title that they've chosen, but they are considered outwardly to be, um, to be what we think of as rabbis. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we end today? Um, I think that I just want to say that I would invite everyone to reread sacred texts, whatever your sacred texts are, right? Because for me, reading the Torah through a gynocentric lens is transformative. But were I Christian, reading the New Testament through a gynocentric lens would also be transformative. I'm currently in a, in a master's in nonprofit management program and a classmate of mine just did a presentation on Christian feminism. And she spoke about her experience of growing up in a household that identified as both Christian and feminist, um, but never actually having read about and studied the women of the New Testament until she was an adult and what a transformative experience it was for her when she started to look at Christianity from the perspective of the women as opposed to what she inherited of Christianity through the perspective of the men. So I would encourage everyone to reread your sacred texts, but ask yourself questions about the perspective and the experiences of the women. And so too, as I said earlier in, in, this, in this talk, um, would I encourage you, uh, would I encourage people who are queer or people who want to understand more of the queer experience to reread their sacred texts through a queer lens and for people of color to reread and question their sacred texts through that lens. And the same with people of varying levels of abilities. Like there are so many different intersectional ways to be a human that have not historically been the way that we read sacred texts. But today there are so many incredible teachers and scholars who are offering us new ways to read ancient texts that are relevant to our lived experiences today. And I encourage all of us to explore those. And instead of just accepting our texts as they've been handed to us, to actually read them ourselves with teachers that can offer different perspectives. Because I guarantee that you will come to understand and appreciate your sacred texts in a completely new way when you apply a new lens to them. Beautiful. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you, Pip. It was lovely, lovely talking to you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Be well. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please join us again another day on Pip Talk. <laughs>